Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Let me toss out a few names for you. Evita, playing the role of Ava Perone. Reno Sweeney, from Anything Goes, the revival of the Lincoln Center back in 87. And more than once, Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd. And also, a chicken farmer from Connecticut. Patty Lupone, welcome. Thank you very much. We'll talk about the chicken farmer stuff later. (laughs) But currently, as Mrs. Lovett, not the first time you've played the role. You've played it before, but currently with Michael Cerveris on Broadway. And I'm very happy, by the way. (laughs) To be on Broadway with Michael Cerveris. And in Sweeney Todd. and, And in Sweeney Todd in this production. Well, you've had a chance to revisit this role now a couple of times. This is the first really fully staged production, or was the Ravinia, when you did it at Ravinia, was that mostly a concert? It actually started at, with the New York Philharmonic. And then there was, the, well, I knew, that was clearly a concert at the Philharmonic, But that's right? where it started, okay. and it's the same production. I see. It was, um, Well Kaufman was the uh, artistic administrator of, of the New York Phil, and it was his idea to celebrate American composers and to celebrate five years of Stephen's life. So he was the one that came up with the idea. At, at the time, it was, Bryn Terfel was playing... Sweeney, and I was his idea as Mrs. Lovett, and he brought it to Court Mazur, and I got a telephone call from my agent saying, would you like to play Mrs. Lovett opposite Bryn Turville with the New York Phil? And I went, uh, uh, I was shocked that I was even thought of. First of all, I never expected to play the role. I didn't think of myself in the role, and then to be offered the role with the New York Phil was just a pinnacle. It was pretty amazing. Um, Lonnie Price... I suggested Lonnie because we had worked together several times on um, fast productions where you have no time to rehearse and yet you are staging a musical. It's it's a little it's worse than summer stock. Let me say fast, you mean bringing it together quickly. Oh yeah, it's uh-huh. worse than summer stock. It's ten days as opposed to two weeks. Sort of like the encores. Is well, that's where we had worked exactly. the encores, and then a couple of benefits. One at Lincoln Center Theater. Um, I suggested Lonnie because I knew Lonnie would be able to accomplish this feat. Wells left the New York Phil and went to the Chicago Symphony and inherited the Ravinia Festival. So there was Lonnie, Audra, and Michael Cerveris, and I have made up a sort of the the nucleus of of the company that followed Wells to Chicago. But it's that particular Sweeney started with the New York Phil. We then went to the San Francisco Symphony where they filmed it, and then to Ravinia and played it there. So it was the exact same production. That is a fully staged, fully costumed fully propped, fully wigged and make-up um, production. The only thing that's missing is a set. The symphonic orchestra becomes the set. Mm. This production, John Doyle, is a, quite minimalist and um, the other end of the spectrum. And the thing that is exciting to me about this production is, first of all, it's incredibly innovative, and I feel as though... I'm. It's ba- it's 1963 again, and I'm in the East Village seeing experimental theater, or in experimental theater. But the other thing that is extremely important for us on stage and for the audience, especially, is that the audience is engaged. There isn't a barrier of sound between the end of the proce- the, the stage and the audience. The audience is pulled to the stage. They come to the stage, and it's this thing that happens where the actor gives it to the audience, the audience gives it back to the stage, we give it back out to the audience, and it becomes a collective one inside of the theater, which has been missing for a long time. 
And but you mentioned that you had done the multiple engagements with with this production that began with the Philharmonic, and I'd read, of course, that you had seen Angela Lansbury do the part. So first you'd seen that, believed to be at the time, the definitive mm-hmm. interpretation of the role. Then you conceived your own interpretation working with Lonnie. Coming into this production, which is, as you say, a markedly different approach to the material, how was that shift for you from what you'd done in several incarnations into this production? It was only one other, you know, even though it was three other orchestras. Right. It, was the, it was the same production. I am an actress, and I am uh, directable. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm really an empty vessel. And Lonnie, this was Lonnie's interpretation or concept was what that was, and this is John's concept. It was not difficult for me to make the switch. The dialogue didn't change. Um, the music didn't change. The lyrics didn't change. Uh, an attitude changed. It, it, it's modern. As a, it's a modern day as opposed to a Victorian era. Um, I had a different Sweeney. I had a different. I have a different Tobias. I am first and foremost an actor. Well, when you first heard of this concept, performing on stage, playing instruments, the orchestra being the actors and vice versa, and a much smaller cast than previous productions, what was your first your first reaction to that? I am um, I'm game for anything. Ask any of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I am not. I don't shy away. I, I mean, he showed when John showed me the costume sketch. He asked me if I had any objections, and I thought, Oh my god, oh my god, I'm going to look as good as I did as Reno Sweeney. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I. I that's why I act. I don't. There's no barriers. I I embrace it all. So I didn't go into it going, well, is it going to work, or am I going to look good, or none of that. It's it's uh, being in something from the beginning is an exciting process. It's a it's a challenge. It's um it helps one grow as as an artist and as a human being. So I don't. I don't stop. I try not to stop the process. Even when somebody said we want you to play the tuba. Well, John, they flew, when I was doing Matters of the Heart, they flew John out to uh, Portland, Oregon um, to meet me. And I felt terrible because he had flown from London to Portland. That's 11 hours. I had a performance that night. So by the time I met with him, it was 5.30 a.m. his time. And I saw this man sitting in the lobby of the hotel because I went back to the hotel, dropped my stuff, got, got out of stage makeup. And I apologized. I said, oh, I'm so sorry that they made you come all the way out here to meet me. There was a lovely wine bar just around the corner. So we sat there, and he had gin tonics. I had red wine, and we talked about everything, about me, my heritage, who I am, about him, his heritage, who he is, our families. And he started to tell me about the concept. And he asked, and they they also asked. He wasn't seeing anybody that didn't play instruments. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But I played tuba in the... Northport High School marching band. On, on Long Island. On Long Island. Ah, so this was not new oh, for no, you. Oh, my good. Oh, my. Well, all right, because then I'm going to tell you Because the stories around town were, oh, Patty is taking her tuba lessons for the oh, first yes, time. Oh, yes. I, I, no, 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 no. Not for the first time no. at all. Uh, not, then I'm going to tell you this story, and it's, I think it's, this is very important for... I'm an, I'm an advocate of music in schools. I don't know where I would be. I don't know where the musicians, the singers... From Northport Elementary, Junior High, and High School would be, and and I have to interject this that more often than not, the musicians are also the very smart mathematicians mm. in our school systems. I don't know where any of us would be without 
the music departments. When I was in third grade, the Ocean Avenue Elementary School, third grade, they marched the third grade class into the auditorium and asked us. They had a um, um, posters of the band instruments and of the orchestra instruments, and they asked the third grade class to choose an instrument. Well, it was a shock to us, but it was also kind of wonderful. And I wanted to play the harp, but Northport Elementary School did not have a harp. And Kathy McCusker from across the room went, cello. Cello? Cello. So I started playing cello at seven years old. I played cello all through elementary, junior high, and high school. I sang in the madrigals, the chorale, the chorus. I went to all Suffolk, it's Northport's in Suffolk County, all state and all eastern. And I was in the chorus. And I was, this was, this formed me much more than my parents' influence on me. My music teachers had more information, more guidance. Um, the tuba came along because the orchestra's always weak because, you know, we're not, you know, and I was last chair cello because I didn't like my, my orchestra leader. <laughs> but the Northport High School band used to go to a band camp every two weeks in the summertime because Bob Kruger and Herrick's High School from Nassau, mm-hmm. I can't remember that band leader's name, band uh, um, were graduates of Northwestern, so they were able to get the latest marching routines from Northwestern. So we'd spent two weeks at camps in the Catskills or the Adirondacks marching during the day, and it was dark at night. And that's because there were no orchestra camps, but there were band no, camps. No, but the, we right? marched, and then yeah. we, of course... Well, was, see, you missed a step here, because you were telling us cello all through, and suddenly you're in the band. Because of these band camps. She wanted to go to camp. Because they were sexy. <laughs> because it was, you know, you'd march during the day, and it was dark at night. But, but there were no street lights. <laughs> <laughs> and, and camp. <laughs> and camp, and so, and you went with a different high school. It was, it was a whole new group of kids you were meeting. And I said, how am I going to get there? Well, I went because my brothers were in the marching band, and my mother was a chaperone. And when I was in junior high, I went, I went, I got to get in on this. So when I got to high school, I went, I got to be in the band. I was still in the orchestra. I marched for the football team, but I played in the concert orchestra and in the choir. I never played in the concert band. But I also said, what's the most, because I was a class clown, what's the most ridiculous thing I could do? Play the tuba. I was going to say, why not the piccolo? It's much easier to carry a piccolo than a tuba. Because it wasn't, didn't have any effect, I'm afraid. Uh. <laughs> we had an all-girl sousaphone line. And one of the girls that was in the sousaphone line actually sousaphones. came to the theater. <laughs> we were, I mean, I did a lot of this. And what I'm doing right now are marching routines with a tuba. Which is brilliant uh, on radio, of course. <laughs> with, with a sousaphone. So carrying the tuba is, you know, I'm, I'm in physical therapy because you don't carry a tuba. You you march with a sousaphone. You sit with a tuba. So when John, this is a long way to say, when so John, John knew I played the tuba. Uh-huh. And we talked about that. And there was two things that John heard, tuba and ens- repertory acting, ensemble training, because I'm a product of the first class of the drama division of the junior And we're going to come back and talk about that. But that was for him. He, I think, was worried about having a quote-unquote star in an ensemble production. Would a quotes star be able to be an ensemble player and I didn't actually know this I but he heard my training is Juilliard I think I'm happiest in an ensemble I'm happiest being part of a cog a, a cog in a wheel do you know what I mean it's it's to watch this particular company at work every night is I could cry it mm. is an incredible experience 
Well, as we're talking about this, because I do want to continue on the theme of the ensemble and 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 your your early work with the acting company, let's first hear something from Sweeney Todd, the new production, and uh, we're going to play Worst Pies in London. How's that? Do you want to just set up? Now, how it works in this production and how you're doing it? Well, it's minimalist, actually. And um, I actually don't raise a cleaver until the second act. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really, it's, we've, the really wonderful thing about this production is, is it's an editing process. Uh, less is more in this case. And so it's a, um, a cup and it's a saucer or a plate. That's it. And, of course, the storyline is Mrs. Lovett makes these wonderful pies eventually from different ingredients that she probably uses at first. So now you're describing the worst pies. I'm, there's nothing in these pies but crusting because there's no business and there's right. and times are hard. And Sweeney walks into my pie shop and I don't recognize him. Uh, and I'm, I'm shocked to see a customer because, you know, I should be out of business. The worst pies in London. From the brand-new cast album of Sweeney Todd with Patti LuPone as Mrs. Lovett, Michael Cerverus as Sweeney Todd, Patti LuPone singing The Worst Pies in London. It is an amazing production. You're up there on stage the entire time. Everybody in the cast is out on stage the entire show. Everybody plays instruments. Everybody moves around a lot. Uh, and there's basically one set, no real scenery changes. A couple things maybe move around a little bit, but not an awful lot. As you say, very minimalist. Um, how, how did you find your interpretation of the role? How did you then come about interpreting Mrs. Lovett the way that you do? Well, the elements were there, the, the, the costume design, the set design, Michael, is a, and, and, and my director. He wanted all of us to tell the story. He did not want, quotes, musical performances. And, of course, ultimately, that is the best way to direct anybody in anything, be it a play for, you know, television, film, stage. He didn't want to get in the way of the story. He didn't want anything to get in the way of the story. My interpretation happened because of the information I was given from my director and from my leading man. I remember you telling me once we spoke a few years ago about shows in general, long before this version of Sweeney Todd, that you're a big fan of the classic musicals, the Rodgers and Hammersteins, the Leonard Bernstein's musicals of that era, and the formula musical. Yeah. And Sondheim, you've done a lot of Sondheim. Sondheim is anything but formula, and this version of Sweeney Todd is f the furthest thing from a formula musical you can come down to. But is it? I mean, when you think about where songs are placed, I guess the formulaic musical is... is you open with a big number. I mean, I, don't, I can't even put my finger on it. You just know. You, you sense it when you're in the theater, when you see the flow of the score. It's certainly not sung through. And it has a little bit of dialogue and a big number, a little bit of dialogue and a ballad, a little bit of dialogue and a duet, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but I think Stephen is a little more, and I daren't say formulaic because I don't, it's, I don't want it to sound cliche, but follows a, a, a structure of, you know, old-fashioned, if we want to say that, musical theater. Mm -hmm. Than not, I think that that he just his subject matter is is, but so was Oscar Hammerstein and mm -hmm. Richard Rodgers. They chose um, dice, not dicey themes, but but hotbed topics. But Sondheim doesn't so much write songs as scenes. In other words, the song is part of the That's scene. That's the, the scene. best of musical yeah. theater. That's mm -hmm. what musical theater is about. When I did, excuse me for interrupting, but when That's I a, did, okay. when I did. When I replaced Carol Demas in The Baker's Wife, I, I worked opposite Topol, who had never originated 
a role in a musical and didn't understand that the songs progress the plot, that you're not going to necessarily get in the book scene. You might get enough of a book scene to make an excuse to have that song move the plot forward a little bit. And he had a very difficult time accepting that. That is, I think, the traditional American, the way the American musical goes. That mm-hmm. that song takes us to the next um, part of the the next beat of the play. And Steve does that. Steve's characters are, well, you know, so what's it that say about Mamet, too, that he doesn't write women well, and I think he writes phenomenally intense, passionate women, and, you know, deep women. As does Stephen. There is a well of emotion. There is a well, a depth. Um, of course, there's a depth in the man, but there's also, you know, this this humanity and this heart and this emotional river in, well, both of those men, Mamet and Sondheim. Well, you've had this unique opportunity through the work at Ravinia to continually explore the, the characters of Stephen Sondheim. What has that progression been for you? It's, um, well, I, you know, I'm, I, it's taken a long time to do a Sondheim. And I'm grateful to Wells Kaufman of the Ravinia Festival, late of the New York film, for thinking of me initially. Uh, it's been incredible. It's been incredible. Um, and uh, it was only going to be five years, and it's going on at sixth, and I think they're going to continue because there is a big audience now for it. Not that there wasn't when we started, but it's continually built, and the audience, the Ravinia audience has told Wells they want this. They want this Sondheim Festival every year. It's been incredible. I mean, I would love to revive um, or reprise Fosca for a long run. I would love to reprise Desiree for a run. I'd love to sit in the in, in the Sondheim Women for a while. I've become a better singer and a better actor because of roles like that, his roles. Well, you talked about yourself as an actor at the beginning of this, and you alluded to that you were in that initial class of the Juilliard Drama Division, and then, of course, very famously now, became part of the acting company, John Hausman and Margot Harley's troupe, going out and bringing classical theater, for the most part, around the country. Can you talk a little about your training? Because as you, you, you keep talking about the Sweeney Todd Ensemble, and of course the acting company is one of the rare continuing ensembles of actors exploring a variety of work. What was it like at that time with you and Kevin Klein and David Schramm and others? It was, you know, David Schramm and Kevin joined in our third year. There were three what they called advanced students who had already gone through the college training and came to our third year of training. It was their first. Um, but by, by the end of it, we had we had an ensemble. By the end of by the end of the first year, there were there were thirty six of us in the first year, and there was a process of elimination every year. Um, it was painful. It was scary. It was um, traumatic to see either students break down, or students leave of their own accord, or students be asked to leave. In a way, it began the ensemble process. <laughs> Those of us that were left sort of <laughs> you know, locked arms. Um, but they try, They trained us technically, and they trained us, well, technically, for the most part. But somehow, in our third year, 
we formed an ensemble without knowing it, without intention from the director that was directing us. But something must have happened, a um, something traumatic, I think, in the production where these actors that basically ate and slept and rehearsed and group groped together formed you know a circle around each other for protection and created an ensemble it was empowering i have always said the most interesting thing on stage is the entire picture not one person in a spotlight with you know jazz hands coming in and out of that light it's you know or you know silhouettes up stage the most interesting thing is the entire picture as long as the entire picture is being fed correctly where there isn't somebody up stage doing something that's pulling focus so the ensemble experience is empowering for an actor. It isn't as it, being a star, being in a star vehicle can be debilitating, can be alone, it and and not supported. Being in an ensemble, there is a everyone has an equal responsibility to look out for each other, to serve the play, to serve the individual role. And especially to look out for each other. So there's a there is a cushion, there is a buoyancy, there is a protection. And in this particular ensemble, there's such a sense. There, all of our senses are are really vital because I could bump into Michael if I didn't have an eye behind my ear. You develop sight in the back of your head. Kind of a sixth sense. You develop, you know. You're, the hair is standing up, and you sense everybody around you. There's nothing more exhilarating to be on stage and feel that there's one flow, there's one energy. And for instance, last night, <laughs> of course, I got everybody came by stage. Talking, I for some reason looked over at Ben Magnuson, who was at the piano, and everybody that's at the keyboard it becomes a conductor. And I thought he nodded his head, so I did the the scratch on the cymbal. Well, of course I had a scratch cymbal solo last night because <laughs> he hadn't nodded his head. But I was committed to it, and I did it. And then, of course, everybody out of the corner of their eye either sniggered at me or, or you know, la- or whatever, but everybody that wasn't in the scene down front found a way to let me know I'd made a big <laughs> boo-boo. Um, and then on stage, of course, everybody talked about it. They, they liked my cymbal solo. But that is a, you know, that's an indication that everybody's on the same page in the show. And that's what you want in order for the, to move an audience. You want everybody there doing, you know, stirring the pot at the same time, creating this brew that's going to bring an audience in and have that theatrical experience, that magical experience. We pay a lot of money to walk into a theater for we don't go in there not, you know, not wanting an experience. We want that. So we want those actors on that stage to give it to us. So when you have an ensemble, it's more likely to happen than a production that doesn't, hasn't stressed. We are in this together. This is your, this is how you fill, you know, this, this is the, the slot you fill. This is the slot you fill. And make sure you do that together. Yet when you came to the broadest attention, it was for your role in Evita, where you were playing this larger-than-life, somewhat imperious character in a show where you had an enormous amount of stage time and attention. Did that in some way for you work against this ensemble ethos, and was that something you had to find your way back to, or that people suddenly thought, no, she's a star, she's not, she's not part of the gang? 
Well, it's I've had a I've had a rough time since Evita uh, with agents that would not necessarily let me go back to Mammoth uh, after Evita because it would you know mess up my oh what how did they say it um, oh financial I'm trying to think of the wording where if I went for instance Livio Chule asked me nine months into my run or nine months earlier to play Rosalind and As You Like It at the Guthrie. And I said yes immediately because I wanted to work with Livy Chule. When my time in Evita was up and I was now going to the Guthrie, my agents didn't want me to because this woman that created Evita now could not go into regional theater. And I kept going, but that's I'm only going back to what I did before I had Evita. David Mamet, Linda Kimbrough left Edmund and at the Provincetown Playhouse right after it opened. And Gregory Mosier and David called and asked if I would replace Linda. And I said, are you kidding? I sat there opening night going, why am I not in this? I said, of course I will. And the agents went, you cannot do that. I went, but they know I have a history with David Mamet. I had it before Evita, but I couldn't go backwards. And yet I did. I defied the agents and went backwards. And what ultimately was accepted in the business was that I am an actor and that I am a straight actor, and I am a musical actor. It took many, many years for them to accept that fact that this was not... I wasn't experimenting when I went into straight plays. That is where, in fact... Doug Wager, for instance, cast me in Accidental Death of an Anarchist because he knew me from the acting company. Cameron McIntosh put me into Oliver because he knew me as a musical performer. And the two of them were... Oliver closed accidental. Um, I don't know if it was Oliver closed one season and accidental death of an anarchist opened the next season. I don't know, but I went from a play to a, mu- a musical to a play. And at first, people were going, "Well, who does she think she is?" But it was my training. I was born with a voice. I was born with charisma. I knew I would be a star. That didn't prevent me from becoming an actor and knowing the difference, and you know, studying so that I could maintain a career. And thank God, I can go into the Provincetown Playhouse, or I can go into, you know, the Broadway theater. Well, when when you and I last spoke a couple of years ago, we were talking about Evita and about your role, how she's a very powerful woman, very demanding to play that role. And you said Evita determined what people thought of you, oh, kind yeah. of defined you on stage, not necessarily as a person off stage. But that, that you also on. said that that's not who mm. you really are, that you're, quote, a hired hand, I think was the words you used. Yeah. That you've been hired to do that part, and you yes. did. So in hindsight, Evita was certainly a wonderful thing for you because it made you a big star. But was it also a double-edged sword? Has it prevented you from doing other things because people yes. see you as Evita? What it did was create, you know, it wasn't, let's see, I'm trying to think. Well, Barbara Streisand hit with a funny girl, mm-hmm. with a funny part. With a, with a star vehicle that is like Evita is a star vehicle. But there was comedy and pathos. There was great music. And it was a star turn for that particular woman. Evita is an unpopular, real person. Unpopular because the Peronists harbored the Nazis. Unpopular because she was to have said to have bankrupt Argentina. And she's a real person. And it was also... The musical wasn't as a, a traditional musical like Funny Girl was a traditional musical. It was by upstart Englishmen who created a modern rock opera. And how now if we saw Evita in that form, we'd go, oh, my God. But then it was like, what? And in order to do justice to the character, I played it as it was written. And my applause used to dip after Mandy's because the audience clearly didn't know 
how they felt about me. And that was very painful every night to go, oh, I know I did a good job, but I, they just were like, well, she's, she slept her way to the top. Even though she dies of cancer at the end, who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but she was a harder figure to swallow, to embrace, to have sympathy with. Um, so I went in as an actor and I came out as this blonde fascist tap dancer. And I got no job offer except for the Scottish play at Lincoln Center Theater directed by Sarah Caldwell. And I actually said, haven't I just been playing her for two years? So was Evita really kind of working against you then, do you think? I think Evita did work. It it took a long time. And I had a lot of problems backstage because I had really, really weak stage management. And I had I was, I had first-timers on Broadway. And what happened was we had – what happens now, which is a killer to me, you know, dancers will come in and dance half a show and leave, but they'll get a full paycheck. I'm thinking, well, why doesn't stage management just send them home if they can't dance the whole show? What's going on here? That happened 20 years ago on Broadway. And I looked at the stage manager going, well, what if I say I'm not going to sing Don't Cry For Me, Argentina? Will I get a full paycheck? What's going on? And that ha- was happening in Evita, and there was nobody that was wrangling or reminding all of us why we're on stage, how lucky we are to be in a hit, and how important this is for future growth. Um, so it, backstage was a tough, I couldn't sing the role. I had to go home, and I, I, was, I, I lived the life of a monk. It was 14 hours of vocal silence, and when I finally opened up my mouth to vocalize for the next day's performance, I turned every faucet on in the house so I didn't have to hear the first note. I muscled my voice and got through it and painfully got through it. But And I, as I look back on it, I, w- I wish I could play that role tomorrow. I wish they'd say, Patty, you want to play a video? I'd say, in a minute, because I can still sing it. And I know the effect of my my interpretation with Hal, with Mandy, with Bob Gunton, Gunton had on an audience. And you know what? It was less me than, you know, I keep going, Evita Perón, she manipulated this whole thing. You would define the role back last time we spoke, an almost impossible vocal range, very demanding, and you sang a lot in it. Yeah, it was killer. I have a battle scar from it. (laughs) On my neck, there's a broken blood vessel. There's a remnants of a broken blood vessel. It was an incredible, it is in order, the way I, you know, maybe some other singer can handle it, but the way I sang it, it was incredibly difficult. For Are me. you serious about the broken blood vessel? Yeah. Really? You can see it. You can see there's... Oh, yeah. I can. Can you see the... There's just... There's a vein over here... Yes. ...where I would shatter the, the vein... The artery... And that... The whatever that is here. Uh, that was... That's my battle... My battle scar for me. Patty's yeah. pointing to the left side of her neck from yeah. the ear down. <laughs> there <laughs> the it big, is. Big old vein. <laughs> So let's go to your next mm-hmm. blockbuster Broadway role, which sounds like it was a bit of a change of pace, namely Reno Sweeney well, and see, Anything Goes. Right. Now, if Reno Sweeney had been where Evita was, that is a different character. You fall in love with that woman. You fall in And the audience, my God, they, I would leave the theater with the audience because I was commuting to Connecticut. I started commuting back then. And they would... I, they'd be singing and dancing to the parking lot at Lincoln Center. And... To see them weep from laughter, just, it was unbelievable. It was, I, again, if that, I would play that role in a second, again. Well, again, Evita was kind of unknown to American audiences. It had been done in London, but you were new. 
and it was the new role, the new character we were learning about, whereas yeah. Reno Sweeney had been done by Ethel Merman half a century earlier. Mm-hmm. Most people hadn't seen her, but they certainly knew she had done it. They'd heard her recordings and all that. So how did you then make it your own? Because you, you really were Reno Sweeney. How did you make that your own role? You know, I, you know, people have asked me that question. Actually, somebody sidled up to me at a bar and went, oh, the woman who... Um the, I can't remember. Liz McCann said something to me, and I, I looked at her and went, I am? Um, it was something like, how dare I assume I can play this role after Ethel Merman? And I went, ooh, I didn't even think that, because I didn't see Ethel's performance, so yeah. I have no idea what she did. Again, thank God I trained as an actor, because the information I was given was the script, my leading man, my character man, Bill McCutcheon, God rest his soul, my director, my costumes, the set, the environment. And I just went for it. You know, I, I, I think that's the way actors work. I just, you know, I thank God I have some, something going on in my brain that I'm not. I got intimidated once. I'll tell you this story, and maybe that changed it for good. I was cast as Lady Teasel. In the School for Scandal, and there are two sort of, you know, premier roles in Restoration Theater, Millamont and Lady Teasel. I had never read a a Restoration. I didn't know what the word meant. I had no idea what it was in the history of the world, but I didn't have the guts to tell the director. This is my big role at Juilliard, and I didn't have the guts to tell the director, and I failed miserably. And it taught me a really, it took me a, maybe, I became the poster girl for the acting company with, as Lady Teasel in the hat, but it taught me a very valuable lesson about admitting one's limitations or, you know, owning up to one's fears and trusting the fact that one has the ability to break down the barriers and get through it. So when you talk about Evie Tepeton and you talk about Reno Sweeney and, you know, someone like, Ethel Merman playing that. How about Zoe Caldwell playing Masterclass? That was, I said to Robert Whitehead when they offered me that, I said, I'm not scared of the part. I have all the information on the part. I'm scared of following Zoe Caldwell. And that was the truth. I wrote her a letter after I saw her performance in Masterclass and said, you were my Masterclass today. I was in a Masterclass today watching you. But when I got to the part, I had, my organic self came up with different information and I trusted myself I trusted myself with Reno I also trusted myself with Evita because they tried to give me Elaine Page's performance and I had to say stop it because you're limiting my choices I might come to that but if you don't let me find it then I'm going to last three seconds up there I will not be able to maintain a performance so it's all about I guess the organic process and trusting the fact that what you think you know, I'm, I, I don't make a conscious decision, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, there was one. Um, <laughs> which, which, which one? Okay. <laughs> Martha Swope was taking pictures for Evita. Uh-huh. And, you know, again, it was like I was, my head was spinning. It was spinning. And she said, Patty, do that thing, the pose. And she, Elaine Page does the, I, how, how can we describe this on TV? She does the Queen Elizabeth, which is the um, the arms upper out, arms. Yeah, the upper arms are Vertical. horizontal and the forearms it's, it's, are It's the goalpost sign. The goalpost, exactly. Right, right. And I went, I didn't, again, I didn't want anybody to give me something. I said, I don't do that. I do this. And I made the V. Mm-hmm. That's when I put the V in, only because somebody said, do what? Elaine Page did. And then, of course, I came across a Life magazine, and Evita is on the Casa Rosada in the V. 
With the arms extended, with rather, the arms extended. rather than bent at the elbow. Except yeah. bent at the elbow, yeah. right. Um, but that was the one time where I went, you know, but I don't consciously go, well, I'm not going to do that because they didn't do that. A lot of very good actors have the right information, mm-hmm. and you can't really change the information. But I, again, I, you know, I'm it, it, doing Lady Teasel in the School for Scandal and failing. Marion Seldes came to me. This is a great story. I tell it all the time. Marion was one of my champions at Juilliard. And it was a, it's a long corridor, you know, on the third floor where the drama division is. And I saw her coming toward me. And we met face to face or cheek to cheek. She said, yes. And I went, I don't know, Marion. I was so confused. And she said, I'm sure you were. And walked away. <laughs> <laughs> that was after my first performance <laughs> as Lady Diesel. <laughs> my wig was askew. My hat was like, a, I don't know, Marion. I was really confused. I'm sure you were. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> and what, what did you think after that? I thought, oh my she's, God! She's right. <laughs> of course, I knew I stunk. <laughs> I totally knew I stunk. I, I went on in sheer guts alone, and it—you know—it's. I've always said that the failures in one's career are the, the lessons, not the successes. The successes you become afraid of, and you 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 um, sort of guard. And you can't break out of that box. But if you fail, then you're given permission to fail again. And the only way one learns is by having, you know, the rug pulled out from underneath them or having, you know, that that place where you do not know what's going on. But after a performance like that, how does one then go back on the next night and do it again and again? That's the lesson. That's one of the lessons. Does you, one you, if it breaks down, then you have to figure out how to pull it together again, and how you get to a very you know. Mono told me he said everything's falling apart. I went good, good. Let it. You know, we we we. I think you know it's it's always a process. We got to a certain point in in our uh, run of Sweeney where we became comfortable with our our performances, and then they didn't hold up in front of an audience. I couldn't didn't figure out the comedy for the first. Maybe a month and a half. I'm finally nailing it. I needed help, you know. I needed to be fed the comic. I needed to be fed. The comic needed to be fed. But now I'm figuring it out. But you, if you if you panic in a situation like that, if you think you're failing, or rather, that you, if you if you know you're failing, you're able and you trust that failure, you're able to dig around, investigate. If you get into a little, I can't change this. I can't change this. I, I'm afraid to do this. It's no good. So when Mono said everything's falling apart, I went, good. Let it fall apart. Let it hit rock bottom again. But probably the first part of the, bout of the battle is admitting that you are failing yes. and, and recognizing it, knowing it, yes. rather than kidding yourself. Right. Or, and not getting intimidated by it. Uh-huh. Not going, oh, my God, I stink. I shouldn't be on a stage, which I say every night. <laughs> Just for the hell of it. <laughs> There's a fairly stock interview question, which is to ask a performer what roles they'd like to play. But listening to you talk... I want to ask, as someone who seems to want to constantly take themselves to the brink and find those challenges and the frightening places, what are the roles you would be afraid to play and therefore want to? Shakespeare. I didn't get cast in Shakespeare at school. Being a Long Island girl (laughs) Um, and being short. John Husband said I'd never be a leading lady. I was too short. Ha! <laughs> Shows what they knew. <laughs> <laughs> but Shakespeare, I would like to do Shakespeare. Shaw. And interesting that you keep coming to the plays rather than musicals, as most people would think of Patti Lupone as a musical performer. But you're right. talking about plays, dramatic yeah. plays. I'm well I- in musical theater. What would? Uh, well, either either one. Yeah, Shakespeare certainly. Shaw. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying, trying to think. Is there anything that 
<laughs> I'm afraid of all the musicals, too. I'm roll, I'm trying to think. Well, we, we, won't, we won't force you into it. But it if, if it comes, you just shout it out. Okay. Um, no, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that everything... I mean, I, having failed at restoration, I now embrace it and would love to do more of it. But I think it also goes back to something you told me a couple of years ago. And the reason I think maybe you picked Shaw, you picked uh, Shakespeare, is you said you consider yourself first to be an actor and secondly a singer. Mm-hmm. In other words, the actor comes first on, on your, your list. Mm-hmm. So you've picked plays as an actor, not necessarily where you get to sing, but where you get to act. That, that's what it sounded yeah. like to me. Yes. I think, yes. I, I don't know why, but I do, I've always considered myself an actor first. I'm a lyric-driven, a dialogue or a plot-driven. I'm not musically driven. I am, mm-hmm. And yet, I have to say that singing is the most natural thing I do. Well, let's talk then about your solo albums, because there you have the opportunity to choose your own material, the material that you get to interpret. And I'm wondering what your process is, since you have even a new album coming out very shortly. Well, I have to say that I, in, back in 1993, when I was doing Life Goes On in Los Angeles, um, one of my oldest friends in the world took me to three housewarming parties, and the last one was at the home of Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. And uh, lovely party. Then I left and I with Jeffrey and I, I sent the car. You know anybody who could put a show together for me because I miss singing because I was just doing, you know, episodic TV. He thought for a minute and he couldn't think of anything. Then he thought of Scott, and he hooked me up with Scott Whitman. And Scott's been doing my one woman shows since 1993. And we should interject that Scott and Mark are best known to listeners of this station as the authors of Hairspray. Correct. Scott's the lyricist, Mark is the composer. And we, the first show we did was Patti LuPone on Broadway. Actually, it was a concert at Westwood Playhouse, the, the, the then Westwood Playhouse. It's now the Geffen Theater, I believe. And we got a gig there. So we put on a show, and the process was Scott would play me music, and whatever we both emotionally or I emotionally responded to, we would investigate. And that's been the process. This last CD... So, so Patti LuPone on Broadway was supposed to be my farewell to Los Angeles because that, that, I was going was, off. That, that was the tour you were doing. Uh, your, your no, I was just I did ten days at the Westwood Playhouse because I was going. I was leaving Los Angeles to go off to uh, start rehearsals for Sunset Boulevard. Well, it actually oh, became okay. my return to Broadway because we all know I didn't come back with Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. and th- so that was the first one, and that was. We investigated just a lot of songs for what is a, you know, quote, corporate gig, which is maybe an hour. When the Geffen Playhouse wanted us, excuse me, the Westwood Playhouse wanted us, we had to come up with another hour. So Scott lined up all my <laughs> my my musical theater chrono- songs mm-hmm. chronologically with, I think the first one was, I don't know if it was the Robert Bridegroom uh, or whether it was something I did in high school. Could have been the Robert Bridegroom, which was the first one, 1976. So we formed that show. Then I didn't want to sing show tunes anymore. I wanted to do an album of music that I listened to as a kid, which was rock, pop. So with Dick Gallagher, Scott, and I listened to more music and solicited composers, you know, unknown composers, John John Buchino, or contacted Jimmy Webb and, and just listened to music. And that's how we chose the next group of songs this last show that we've done which is the lady with the torch i wanted to do blue bluegrass 
And Scott wanted me to do Torch, and so we ended up doing Torch because Scott is a genius at this particular thing he does. And I have been extremely successful with Scott at the helm of these shows. I think I'll eventually do a bluegrass album because it's the happiest music on the face <laughs> of the earth. <laughs> well, if, if the CD is called The Lady with the Torch, you can't much do bluegrass. You have no, to do I, Torch songs. We did Torch. We did, <laughs> we did Torch songs. And again, you know, it was a process of we we listened to music. And, and we didn't want it just, just to be, woe is me, you know, why why was I born? Why am I living? So it has a, a slight bend to it. It's reflecting. It's a reflecting while one is in it, as opposed to the beating of the chest after the. Well, on the on, the on the new CD, which is called, as we said, "The Lady with the Torch," is a lot of great American <laughs> popular standards, which happen to be torch songs, such as "The Man I Love," "Guess I'll Hang My Tears After Dry," "Cottage for Sale," "Ill Wind," "I Want to Be Around." Why don't you pick one? We'll play it. Ill Wind. Ill Wind. Why that song of, of the well, I'll tell you. 14 songs on the CD? Jonathan Tunick did the orchestrations for this. Red Press contracted 10 of the most phenomenal musicians that also play either with the New York Phil or in the Broadway pits. And I think they sound incredible on this album. That's one of the reasons why I love this album so much, because of these 10 guys. And of course, Jonathan's arrangements, because Jonathan is a genius at what he does. But these men, I just am in love with each and every one of these musicians, and I wish I could just be the girl singer with the band and just travel around the country with these guys. They, uh, The way they play on this album is unbelievable, and the way they play on Ill Wind. And they're all <laughs> they're all sort of middle-aged white guys, <laughs> except for Chris Vanek, <laughs> who's the baby of the group. And they all sound black. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to it. Ill Wind, Patti LuPone. From Patti LuPone's new CD, Not Yet Out. It comes out April 25th, I believe, on, wow. on Ghostlight. At the end of April, around, around the 25th, Ghostlight record, Kurt Deutsch's label. That's Ill Wind. A lot of good popular standards on there, Patti. I remember you had told me once that you really like the ballads. And we think of you as singing, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, all the big, strong songs. You said you really like the, the soft, the ballad songs. I think, you know, isn't it weird how one perceives one of someone and then what is mm-hmm. actually the case? Um I, you know, I was called a melancholy baby forever. There's just a sadness in me. You know, I'm, I don't go around and like advertise it, but there's a, there's an Italian melancholy in me, which lends itself to torch, which lends itself to ballads. Who were your musical influences when you were growing up? Edith Piaf. Hmm. She's my favorite, all time favorite. But I listened to show tunes, I listened to Mary Martin, I listened to Ethel Merman, I listened to Patrice Munsell, I listened to Rosalind Russell. I listened to, you know, Barbara Streisand is clearly the songbird of the century, last century and this century. And, you know, but Edith Piaf for me, Joni Mitchell, Lauren Nero, but Edith Piaf for me is the one where she, I, that to me is the ultimate singer because of the interpretation, the and just where she takes me in a song. Hmm. We do need to let you go to the theater so you can become Mrs. Lovett. But yeah. I do want to ask you about that chicken farming. In oh well, no, we don't yeah. chicken farm anymore. You don't. You sold no, we, the chicken we farm. Sold, we sold the big house and we're down oh. in a, a, a smaller house. But we had about sixty birds at one point because my husband would not, could not call the flock. You have to call the flock, but they all had names. So we ended up <laughs> with about sixty chickens and about thirty-five guinea fowl. And um, it was, I miss the chickens. I miss the farm fresh eggs. And I also miss watching them because they are pretty silly. Um, 
but we're you know um we're getting older so we're downsizing and now we only have three dogs and a cat mm. that's well, enough <laughs> well when people watch you on stage hope they don't think of a chicken farmer they think of in this case mrs lovett from sweeney type <laughs> revival and patty lapone thanks so much for being with us today at downstage center my pleasure thank you for asking me thanks patty thank you for the american theater wing i'm howard sherman reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the american theater wing is available online on demand for free from our website www.americantheaterwing.org and for XM Satellite Radio I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center that's a wrap and thank you <laughs>